Welcome. My name is Glenn Diesen. I'm a professor at the University of Southeastern Norway. Uh, with me is uh, Alexander Mirkuris, and the guest today is none other than uh, Jack Matlock. So, Mr. Matlock, uh, he was the ambassador to the Soviet Union from 1987 to 1991 and um, well, held the position there uh, in Moscow as uh, the Cold War uh, was negotiated to an end. And uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you're also stationed at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow uh, from 1961, and you were there during the Cuban Missile Crisis in '62. Uh, anyways, uh, Matlock's background uh, from both politics and also being an historian has made his books uh, extremely interesting. So, and the whole idea is, if if you don't get the history right, then politics doesn't really make any sense. So. Matlock is definitely one that has both the political background and his historic uh, the background as an historian, uh, which is why his books such as Autopsy of an Empire, uh, Reagan and Gorbachev, and uh, Superpower Illusions, uh, these are all excellent books, which I definitely always have, uh, recommend to my own students. So um, our purpose today is to explore uh, some of Matlock's uh, uh, experience or insights and his work. So we're going to first just look at, uh, yeah, discuss uh, topics from yeah, how the Cold War ended in 1989, the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, some of the mistakes done in terms of establishing a post-Cold War settlement, and uh, hopefully if we have time as well, how these failures of the past may have contributed to the conflict we're currently in Europe, and if there's any way out. So um so uh yeah let's uh, jump straight into it and uh and uh i guess the, the history of how the cold war ended is is um obviously one of uh, um, uh matlock's uh, great contributions given that he had such a, a key role uh but also being uh, yeah, a key focus of his writing so uh so it's argued in, in in your book that uh, well you explore many of these Cold War myths, uh, as you argue in your book on about Reagan and Gorbachev, uh, that you know like one of the myths was that uh, Reagan wasn't bashing the Soviets until they surrendered, uh, leading to a victory. Um, so often we have this narrative of uh, Reagan calling the Soviet Union the evil empire. He confronted the evil, and then you know evil collapsed. Now, you dispute this narrative and uh, argue that Reagan uh, not only showed uh, interest in peace, but he, the common narrative is that he only pursued this in his second term. But as you write, uh, he talked about a peaceful settlement already from his first day in office in 1981. Sorry, and you then described him very frank and direct, but seeking, again, a peace through um, a settlement. I was just wondering if you could... Um, uh, a comment uh, on how 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 you saw uh, this this final period in the Cold War between Reagan and uh, and uh, Gorbachev. Well, you know, I was privileged to be uh, in uh, in the White House advising uh, President Reagan on his policy toward the Soviet Union uh, from uh, nineteen eighty three. Uh, and, and then in 1987, I was sent as uh, the United States ambassador to Moscow, as you, as you have mentioned. So that 
I was able to uh, witness, you might say, from the inside, uh, the, the way the relationship developed during that period. And quite frankly, I think most people, uh, both in the United States and in Europe, uh, many people, maybe even most, have a very mistaken idea of how this happened. Uh, first of all, uh, the, uh, the idea that uh, the end of the Cold War was a, something like a victory of the West over the Soviet Union, I think is incorrect. We negotiated an end to the Cold War, and uh, we uh, negotiated it uh, with uh, the benefit of ending it uh, an equal one for uh, both sides. Now, uh, this required a change in certain Soviet policies, but these changes occurred about, and they occurred peacefully. Uh, now, uh, you know, as I began to work with President Reagan, and I was brought on his staff with the specific task of developing a negotiating strategy uh, for uh, to end the arms race and, if possible, the Cold War itself. Uh, now. Uh, and that strategy was a peaceful one. And uh, President Reagan very much condemned communism. Uh, and but he never, you know, he never condemned Russia, qua Russia. He understood uh, that the problem was the communist system. It was ideological and not something that, uh, you know, um, should be attributed to a single nationality. So, uh, he, and as far as the Soviet Union was concerned, his attitude was communism is a bad system. But if they want it, that's their business. What we object to is they're enforcing it on other people, particularly using force to impose it on others. They need to stop imposing it on others. And that is precisely what Gorbachev did, and particularly and ideologically when he abandoned Marxism-Leninism, that is the communist philosophy, as the basis of his foreign policy, which he did publicly December 7th, 1988, uh, in a speech at the United Nations. Then in effect, he removed what had been the basic cause of the Cold War. So the Cold War uh, ended. Uh, certainly ideologically by the end of 1988, while President Reagan was still president. Now, there were a lot of problems that developed, particularly the domination, the communist domination of Eastern Europe, that were only resolved until the next year. But they were resolved peacefully. And, uh, and not because of Russian, uh, of Western pressure. The idea that we sort of spent them to defeat is absolutely wrong. Uh, we negotiated an end in the interest of everybody, including the Soviet Union. And then people say, yeah, but the Soviet Union broke up. True, but it broke up not because of Western pressure, but precisely because of two things. One thing, Russia, uh, the Cold War was over 
the Western military pressure had ceased by 19, uh, uh, by uh, 1989 when Eastern Europe went free peacefully on the whole, certainly without any Soviet intervention. Uh, and uh, then the, uh, the, the second thing is that the Soviet Union broke up because of internal pressures that were unleashed when Gorbachev tried to democratize the country by taking the Communist Party out of complete control and by refusing to use force to suppress uh, the separatist tendencies. First time in Russian history uh, that that had been the case. And so that you had a leader in the Soviet Union who was a genuine Democrat with a little d, and uh, who was genuinely trying to change the system. Uh, now, the system turned out couldn't be changed so easily. There was opposition, and particularly the strength of, of local nationalisms tore it apart. So the idea that uh, uh, the Cold War ended uh, when the Soviet Union, in effect, collapsed is untrue. That was two years after the Cold War ideologically had ended, and well after the, the liberation, you might say, of Eastern Europe uh, and, and so on. Uh, at that time, uh, the United States policy, uh, the elder Bush, George H.W. George Bush was president. I was, I was still in Moscow as ambassador uh, for uh, a couple of years after he became president. And, you know, our policy then was not to try to break up the Soviet Union. We were very determined to try to keep the, th to get the three Baltic states, the three Baltic countries to get their independence. We had never recognized that they were legally part of the Soviet Union. And, uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, we thought that it would be the benefit of everybody if Gorbachev could lead them into a voluntary federation, a voluntary federation of the other 12 republics, including most specifically Ukraine. And that's why on August 1st, uh, if I remember the date correctly, uh, August 1st, uh, 1991, uh, George Bush gave a speech to the Ukrainian parliament, uh, the Vikhovna Rada, where he wore, endorsed Gorbachev's federation idea, advised them to cooperate with him in a voluntary federation, and warned against suicidal nationalism. I think he was absolutely wise to do that. And now, not everybody in his administration agreed with this, but uh, George Bush put that in his speech personally. I was on the plane with him between when he flew from Moscow to Kiev, and he added it 
in his speech, in his own handwriting, called me into his compartment and said, uh, is this okay? Uh, do you agree? And I told him I did. Uh, so uh, now, um, you know, later, some members in the administration, well, they didn't really mean it or something like that. That isn't true. Uh, but so to get back to uh, your original points, one of the things that has distorted Western policy and Russian policy uh, since the end of the Cold War is a misinterpretation. First of all, of how it happened, who was defeated, and, uh, and uh, what this implied for the future. Uh, and uh, it seems to me the idea that the, you know, the West or the US or NATO was triumphant in bringing down the Soviet Union is absolutely wrong and also has been at the root of many of our mistaken policies since. Well, uh, yeah, that's one of the things that really stand out from the book, that how this, uh, well, not just the one, but uh, how this really, how uh, effectively a negotiation, a process of uh, mutual respect, recognizing each other's security interests, uh, led to a common peace, how this suddenly became a narrative of uh, victory in terms of uh, confronting the adversary, uh, outspending them, uh, and then effectively imposing regime change and then having a full victory. That uh, the lessons of history went from in yeah, negotiations to uh, to yeah, the, the defeating mm. victories and toppling governments. It's uh, um, yeah, which is why I thought it was interesting. Uh, actually, posts in as the title in one of your books mm. and sections, which is uh, um, mm. why uh, history, the why get the history must be understood correctly. Um, mm. That's uh... can I can I just ask Mr. Matlock a question here because I remember the last years of the Cold War. When I said last years, I don't just mean the very last years. I mean the entire period from the nineteen sixties. And my recollection of it was that the overriding objective of U.S. and Western policy at that time was not to achieve victory at any point. It was to secure peace. It was to establish a, a stable peace in Europe and not just Europe, but in the world and to avoid the disaster of nuclear war. And I remember Ronald Reagan very well. I, I, I remember him at the time when he was president. And again, my impression of Reagan was that, again, one of the things that drove him very strongly was a desire ultimately to achieve peace. It was not, again, victory that he was seeking. And first of all, just the question, I mean, would you basically agree with this view that, you know, way back in the 1960s, through the detente period, beyond the detente period, even during the tenser period that we had in the late 70s, early 1980s, that desire to avoid a clash, a, a military clash, between the superpowers to preserve peace was the overriding one and the second one and my own view is that it was precisely because that peace was secured that the political changes in the soviet union became possible when there was this period of tension that was what stood in the way of political change and it's because now we are seeing 
confrontation takes place, that we're seeing again the hardening of the systems, the uh, confrontation atmosphere is causing political changes in Russia in a direction perhaps that we don't like. A complex question, but anyway, that's my question essentially. That was a very long question. Yeah. Um, as I understand it, you're discussing the possibility of establishing a, uh, a pan-European uh, security system in the yeah. 1990s. Uh, yes, I think uh, that was the task uh, that we should have, we in the United States and Western Europe, should have tried to create, and I think the possibility was there uh, to creating it. And I think that, uh, for example, uh, the, the original proposal for a partnership of peace uh, between the, um, uh, the members of NATO and other countries in Europe and Eurasia uh, that had developed was a fine uh, one. Uh, I think that this provided flexibility, it provided for cooperation. It uh, did not bring about a, a unified uh, uh, military structure or divide Europe again. Um, so uh, I think uh, we started, but on the other hand, uh, uh, the countries failed uh, to create a, a sort of an operative security structure, which would also include uh, the countries uh, that uh, uh, had broken up uh, in the Soviet Union. And uh, I think that was a great uh, diplomatic failure of the 1990s. And also I think it was a mistake to begin expanding NATO. Uh, and I argued at the time that this would be a big mistake. Um, and because uh, once you start expanding, uh, how do you stop? And at a certain point, you have to stop if, unless NATO includes everybody in Europe, because otherwise it's going to create a line of, of security uh, problems uh, for the other side. And uh, it's going to make it look as if uh, the end of the Cold War was a military victory which is being exploited uh, by the West and by NATO. And they were not, there was no threat against any of them militarily at that time. So it seemed to me it made no sense. Now what did make sense was economic cooperation. Let's not forget that the countries of Eastern Europe, just like the former Soviet Union, were changing the whole orientation of their economy, which is a very profound shift. This was hard for all, but it was particularly hard for those in the Soviet Union, which had been imposed on the communist system, imposed on them for more than 70 years. And countries like uh, then Czechoslovakia or Poland, it had been a shorter period, uh, just during, uh, you know, the post-World War II period. 
And in countries like Poland, they had never suffered the collectivization of agriculture that had so damaged uh, the, uh, the economies of those that were in the Soviet Union. Uh, and so uh, it seemed to me that there was a major problem that, that of shifting from what had been the state or in Communist Party control systems uh, uh, to a free market assistance and uh, market uh, economics, uh, that this, this was a problem that should be made a mutual problem and we should leave any military threats or security interests out of it uh, because it was going to be hard enough politically. Now, if you start expanding NATO at the same time that you are trying to build a European Union and build it closer and eventually bring in the East Europeans and, and one would hope uh, Russia uh, into a continent-wide, uh, you might say, free trade system, that of course should have been the goal. Mm. And, uh, but when you combine sort of psychologically attempts to change the economy. And you know, what you have to understand is that when this process is going on, the people who have been in control uh, during uh, uh, the communist period are going to become the losers. And other people are seen as the winners. So this gets very deep in domestic politics. Uh, and for outsiders, as we all should understand, outsiders getting involved in another country's domestic politics doesn't necessarily help the ones they want to. Often it can hinder them. And uh, so uh, the idea that we had to uh, bring in the East Europeans who were not being threatened by anybody, particularly not by Russia in the 90s, uh, who was simply trying to find jobs for all the military that had had to be uh, uh, placed in the civilian economy. And frankly, it seemed to me that nobody had a magic formula for changing the communist system into a productive capitalist system. It had to be done in stages, but it could be more easily done much more easily done in a cooperative way when there was no implication that this had military or security implications. And when, even though the members of NATO and the members of the EU were not precisely the same, I mean, Norway was in NATO and Sweden was not and so on. Um, Switzerland wasn't in any of them still. Basically, uh, NATO became this, uh, simply, uh, basically militarily uh, Western Europe and North America, uh, U.S. and Canada. Uh, and uh, so it, it, it seemed to me obvious, uh, number one, uh, that you start expanding it and it's going to be seen as being hostile on the other side. At, taking advantage of a negotiated into the Cold War as if it were a military victory. Uh, and uh, 
so that's why I very strongly advised against NATO expansion. Uh, and uh, we also added at the time, when you start, how are you going to stop? Because um, for a whole lot of reasons, you are going to have to stop if you start expanding NATO before you are considering any of the, what I would call the 12 legal, that is recognized parts of the Soviet Union. Because most of these for centuries had been part of the same state. And you know, uh, so that uh, uh, in a way, it was pretty clear from the beginning that, you know, a Russian government may not like it, but they would tolerate Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, and NATO. They would even accept most Russians, the three Baltic countries, recognizing that they had a rather different history from the others. But when you get to Ukraine and Georgia, this is something else. And no Russian government was going to be comfortable with that. And that, I think, should have been obvious to everybody with even some smattering of knowledge of history of that area. And yet, uh, obviously, uh, that's not uh, the co uh, course uh, that uh, uh, U.S. and uh, Western policy followed. And I think that is a great tragedy. Let me add one thing, though. I've been at conferences uh, discussing this, and uh, uh, some commentators said, well, it was a great failure in 1991. At the time when the Berlin Wall was coming down, we were negotiating, uh, you know, uh, the unity of the two German states and so on something that was basically determined by the German people, uh, uh, ultimately. Uh, but as we were discussing these things, others said, well, why didn't you create the European, uh, uh, European security system then? Let me tell you, I don't think we could have in 1991, because we still had very new governments in Eastern Europe, governments all of which were had major internal problems. The Germans had the whole problem of how you really unify the economy of the two Germanys. It turns out they did it about as successfully as humanly possible, but who knew in 1991 uh, how this was going to work out? And you could only work out a European security system with everybody participating in it. It's not something that could be imposed by the United States and its Western allies. That was not going to work. What happened was by trying to impose an expanding NATO, we have created the conditions that we face today with war once again in Europe. Well, I'm, I, I'm glad you brought it to that point. Uh, well, actually, in, in your book, you, well, one of your book, you even refer to uh, NATO expansion as uh, you could compare it to the mistake made at uh, Versailles in 1919, uh, 
uh, with the effort of uh, securing peace through a permanent weak Germany or uh, an exclusionary security architecture. And I thought it's interesting because your words tend to, it, it reminds me of George Kennan at times, uh, who, who, who shared your concerns. Um, and being also very critical of NATO expansion. He also gave an interview, I remember, in 98, when he pointed out, well, well what you said now as well, that at one point uh, Russia would react very negative to NATO expansion. Uh, and, and again, at this point, we would then end up in a conflict. And he predicted that, this, that the West would then solely blame Russia for this conflict. Uh, and yeah, so I thought it was interesting you, you, you landed at this conflict in Ukraine now, because you... Do you, do you consider the, the expansion of NATO to be one of the main or one of the uh, causes of this conflict? Again, not to alleviate Russia of any responsibility, but uh, um, do, you, do you draw that connection as well with NATO expansion uh, leading to this war in Ukraine? And, uh... Well, of course, uh, Russia is responsible for its decision uh, to invade Ukraine. No question about that. It was uh, a decision which I think is going to be disastrous for both countries, both Ukraine and Russia. I, I would only say that, as I argued earlier, if our policies had been different, I think it is most likely that decision would not have been made. Uh, now, uh, that doesn't excuse it. Uh, and, you know, as uh, I think uh, it was uh, Talleyrand who once commented, or maybe it was Metternich, uh, when uh, a certain decision was made and he described it as worse than a crime, a mistake. Uh, so, yes. But I think that if one looks deeply into the roots of the current war in Ukraine, you would have to uh, uh, conclude that it could have been avoided, and it almost certainly would have been avoided if uh, there had not been uh, uh, the, the threat of NATO expansion and the actual um, military involvement of NATO countries uh, in uh, Ukraine. Uh, after its, uh, one could call them troubles, uh, in 2014, when the government was changed and became much less representative of the whole country. But the problem here is that Ukraine's problems are fundamentally internal. And it is the, you would say, the interference of outsiders not just Russia, but also the West and the U.S., which has created what is basically an internal problem of a country which has tried to combine two different interpretations of what it means to be Ukrainian uh, in one country. And it never had, since its independence, a leader able to unite these two factions. And the West has gotten involved, uh, particularly the United States and some of the other EU countries have gotten directly involved in its internal politics, as has Russia. 
And so this has become, I think, in an artificial way and a way which no one is going to win a contest between East and West. Uh, Ukraine, I think, uh, cannot uh, create you know, a flourishing, happy, productive country uh, in the land that it inherited unless it has policies which allow it to have reasonably good relations with Russia. And that means that you've got to treat its Russian-speaking population as loyal Ukrainians who have their own culture, which they too want to preserve. And what most people ignore is that Joseph Stalin, as a gift of Hitler, is the one who brought the Western areas of Galicia and Bolivia into uh, what was in Ukraine, creating a country with two competing conditions of what it means to be Ukrainian. One of them respects the fact that some of them prefer the Russian language and are more comfortable in it, even though they can be loyal Ukrainians. Um, and yet, what we have now is a situation which one of them, on the Western side, which had not until uh, uh, not until the eve of the of the Second World War had ever been part of of uh, Russia, uh, whereas uh, the eastern parts had been. So you have that internal division, and you can see it in the voting. Uh, at every one of the elections they have had. But the current government at 2014 uh, was uh, first elected by a rump uh, legislature, which did not include a lot of the representatives uh, uh, after the, the violence in 2014, which seems to have been started uh, in the West not in the East, uh, in the Russian part. Uh, and uh, since then, we have had a government uh, in Ukraine, which uh, the Russians uh, consider the result of a coup d'etat, backed by the West. And, you know, frankly, there's a lot of evidence to support that. It's not a total lie. It may be an exaggeration. It's not a lie. And we're, this whole situation has been confused by what I think massive propaganda on both sides. Uh, you know, both Ukraine and Russia, after all, inherited their security organizations, their information organizations from those that were created in the Soviet Union. And I think the outside world, you know, is faced with... Um, tendentious information that has been coming from all sides. Uh, so um, I, I think that the, all of the governments involved have made very fundamental mistakes and it's going to be very hard uh, to solve this now. Well, um, yeah, uh, I, I agree with your analysis because I think this uh, the divisions between East and West Ukraine, they, 
uh, the one of the key problems they've had is trying to find a way to yeah harmonize them because if you're in West Ukraine, you have this one one uh, ethnicity, one culture, one language. If you're in the East, you see two languages, two cultures, two ethnicities. I think they worked against each other to a large extent on nation building. I think the problem is the external actors, uh, both the West and the Russians, because obviously Russia would like the Eastern Ukrainians to represent the real Ukraine while in the West. Because we tried to create this Europe without without Russia, <clears throat> avoidably made us support the Western Ukrainians, who then uh, well, doesn't lead to much democracy now. I guess if uh, they're going to suppress all the Russian, uh, the, the, yeah, the, the Russian uh, speakers, such so, as yeah, Alexander. Well, I, I would please please continue. It's be very hard to for an outsider or even an insider to judge some of these things. Undoubtedly, the Russian invasion uh, has turned, I would say, you know, it's bound to have turned uh, some Russian, a lot of Russian speaking Ukrainians uh, against Russia. I think, but what I think those, uh, you might say, Ukrainian nationalists uh, haven't taken into account is that if you have a country with substantial minorities of, you know, of uh, people of a different culture, even if they have been at some times in their history, the oppressors, that if you want to create a loyal country, uh, you, you have got to give them cultural rights. Look at Finland you know, for years sort of dominated by Sweden, later by Russia. But uh, when they declared independence, uh, those areas that were Swedish speaking, I think at least 20% had their right to their schools. And, you know, in Helsinki, you had a Swedish theater and a Finnish theater, uh, a Swedish national newspaper and a Finnish national newspaper. And the Swedish speakers became just as loyal to Finland, the Finlanders, as did the Finnish speakers. And everybody could sort of, after schooling, understand both languages. Or look at Belgium. You know, uh, if the French-speaking Vallon, you know, uh, kept saying, well, you know, they didn't want to be part of France. And, you know, they don't always see things the same way as the Flemings. But Belgium is able to create, you know, a very successful country giving equal rights to both. And then, of course, when you get to Switzerland, you have four different nationalities, three of them uh, being the same as a neighboring country. And yet they, by giving equal rights to everybody, they have created a very successful uh, Swiss identity. Uh, and so on. Or look at Ireland. Uh, if they had said to be a, you know, uh, to be a real Irish citizen, you've got to speak Gaelic. You can't speak English. Why? Would that have worked? So I think when you look at other countries, you say, you know, what is this idea that if you're a Russian speaking, you're hostile to Ukraine, you can't be a Ukrainian? I mean, it really makes no sense. 
And I'm afraid that is the, the attitude which is, dominates the current government. And that's why, for one thing, they cannot, on that basis, create a successful country in all of the land that they inherited in 1991. That's just not going to be possible unless there's genocide of the Russian-speaking population. And, you know, I don't, so many people who look at this, I think, really ignore some of these basic uh, 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 things. But the basic thing is, these are problems that need to be determined internally by the Ukrainians. And the, the involvement of outsiders, uh, I think, has been deleterious, whether it was by the Russians or by the Europeans or by the Americans. I think that uh, it is never a good idea for a foreign country to get directly involved in the internal politics of another, you end up actually hindering the people you think you're trying to favor. Well, I mean, I, I obviously agree. I would also say that I think we need to be much more measured in our language in the West, certainly in Britain, when we discuss Ukraine. And this has been a major problem. Now, our, our, our language, our rhetoric has got so inflamed that it's very difficult for people to take a step back and consider the points that we've just heard. Can I say something uh, in addition to this, which is that right at the start, well, over the course of this discussion, there was the point about NATO expansion being one of the roots of the problem in Ukraine. And we've also heard this point about Ukrainian nationalism and its difficulty in accepting that there is differences within Ukraine and that this has also been a problem. I think what has caused a, ma a major intersection is that those two things came together in the sense that the moment NATO was offered as a prospect for Ukraine, it became immediately an issue between Ukrainians themselves, which deepened these divisions that we've just heard about and made the clash of nationalisms and identities greater still. I'm not sure what the question was. Uh, yes, I say it my was, hearing is not it was, yeah, yeah. perfect. It, it, was, it wasn't a question. It was just a point that, as I said, yeah. the moment NATO membership was offered to Ukrainians, some Ukrainians who were nationalists would be minded to support it. Other Ukrainians who were Russian speakers would not be so happy. And that intensified the divisions in Ukraine. And that was something that ought to have been foreseeable at the time. I'm, I'm curious, Don. Yeah, yes, these That's... are uh, your point to, I think, some very important uh, matters. I would say that I believe anyone interested in the background of the current conflict in Ukraine should read a book just published uh, uh, this month uh, by uh, Nikolai Petro, a professor at the University of Rhode Island called The Tragedy of Ukraine. That is the most balanced and I think complete examination 
of the historical and cultural factors uh, that are operative here. And, you know, I think he goes very objectively looking at matters from both sides, if you want to speak of uh, what he would call the uh, uh, the uh, Ukrainian nationalist side uh, in uh, the West and the Novo Russia, the idea that you can be Ukrainian but also speak Russian, uh, uh, which uh, seemed to dominate uh, in the East and the South. Uh, he, he explores, I think, very clearly uh, the historic basis of these, uh, how different you might say legends of, of the historical character differ on both sides. He names the historians uh, and their things. And uh, he reports on events since, uh, particularly since 2014, much of which time he spent in Ukraine. Uh, and unlike many, uh, he spent time in both East and West. Uh, not just in West or just in Kyiv. And uh, uh, anyway, uh, what he points out is that uh, this is really similar to a Greek tragedy. And uh, he, in fact, he finds inspiration from the Greek tragedy in trying to understand it. But uh, uh, so he sees the only possibility later is a reconciliation between the two, more communication between the two, uh, and you might say a truth and reconciliation procedure. Well, you know, uh, I think uh, that is the most insightful uh, book I have read, uh, but I think, can, can one predict that this is going to happen? I think that, you know, frankly, every step many of the involved governments have made, make it more and more difficult. And uh, uh, particularly the uh, declaration by the Russian parliament of parts of Ukraine as parts of Russia, you know, they're making decisions which clearly violate uh, international law and practice. You can't just proclaim part of another country part of yours. Uh, even though on cultural grounds, uh, the, you know, there are similarities. Uh, but uh, uh, so uh, it, it does seem to me that uh, uh, both sides uh, have made decisions and are making decisions uh, that, uh, that mean, you know, nothing but conflict in the future. And these are not going to be decided uh, by military means alone. In fact, I think the use of the military to, uh, to deal with essentially internal political problems uh, has been a disaster for everybody. And so it's very difficult for me to be optimistic in anything like the, the near term. Uh, I, I think that uh, eventually it's bound to be that much of that North America and particularly in the United States and uh, maybe less so in Canada, which has a very strong influence of, of Western uh, Ukrainians uh, and much of Western Europe is going to 
begin to get rather tired of what is going to be an enormous burden, uh, whether it's of refugees or of inflated prices because of the attempt to cut Russia out of, of uh, most economic uh, uh, transactions in Europe. Uh, it complicates almost everything, uh, whether it comes from dealing with global warming uh, or uh, a further development uh, uh, of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, resources in a way that uh, 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 allows us to uh, accept the many refugees that are going to come into Europe and North America for reasons that have nothing to do with this, but because of starvation and, and violence elsewhere in the world. So the big issues, and meanwhile, we're still dealing with a pandemic and there could be others coming on and to be fighting over where that border is and whether there should be cultural rights for uh, Russian uh, citizens of Ukraine seems to me crazy. I mean, we've got bigger issues that we need to be dealing with and I will not see the results in my lifetime. Do you think uh, Ukraine would have to make any territorial concession uh, in order to get a in a settlement at the end, or do you envision any other form of settlement? Well, I don't, well, you know, I don't see how uh, this is going to be ended. Uh, uh, if it, uh, uh, I don't see how it's going to be ended or how Ukraine is going to hold itself together uh, if it waits until it so-called reconquers all the territory. And that's particularly true of Crimea, where most of the people probably prefer to be in Russia. So, but on the other hand, uh, as long as, uh, as, uh, Ukraine supporters um, allow them to sort of uh, make uh, that decision of nationality. It's going to uh, it is going to uh, prevent. But on the other hand, uh, one can say that there's no way uh, that they should be conceding uh, that uh, Zaporozhye. Uh, they are some of the other southern provinces that uh, uh, Russia claims are going to be, you know, considered as part of Russia. I think that demand Russia is making is one that no Ukrainian government could agree to. But uh, the problem is that I think now in the West, the whole anti-Russian sort of you can't be uh, Russian speaking and Ukrainian because Russia is an evil country and it's an evil language and we've got to ban Russian books and so on. This attitude seems more and more to dominate in the East. And when you have that sort of attitude, how do you get inside the country that sort of recognition? And it seems to me that both of the sides have painted themselves into positions that are unworkable. And this is as true of the Russian position as it is of the Ukrainian. Uh, now, 
Ultimately, if it is going to be solved, it has to be solved between the Russians and Ukrainians. And uh, my contention is that uh, outsiders have created more problems than they have solved. Uh, and if outsiders had stayed out of it before, we probably would never have had this war in Ukraine. Uh, that's my opinion. But everybody is involved. And they were going to, everybody, particularly in Europe, is going to be involved in the fallout. I mean, how many Ukrainian refugees are going to stay in Western Europe rather than going back? And how is this going to affect relations within their countries? And so on. I mean, historically, these Western Ukrainians have been more anti-Polish than uh, anti-Russian. Uh, of course, that was when the Poles were trying to impose Polish culture on them. Uh, but uh, I don't think you can predict uh, the future other than if the Western policy of weakening Russia succeeds, that it's not going to be in the interest of Europe, in the interest of peace, or in the interest of development. Because we need Russia to cooperate in all of the things that affect us all, whether it be global warming, whether it be pandemics, whether it be dealing with refugees, because they take in a lot of refugees, you know, from Eastern Europe and the Caucasus themselves. And you cannot have a healthy Europe unless it has a healthy economic relationship with Russia. I mean, that's just not going to happen. So, and yet nobody has really defined what it will take to get the sanctions off on Russia, other than their complete capitulation in Ukraine. Now, I think these policies really are making it very, very difficult to settle on any terms. And as the war progresses, Ukraine is going to be piece by piece, more and more destroyed. And this is one of the tragedies. And yes, Russia is suffering greatly from it in all its various ways. And yet, in the final analysis, what is happening is not in the interest of Ukraine or Western Europe or Russia, or for that matter, from North America. And that's a tragedy today. So again, uh, if people are really interested in this, uh, get Cola of, uh, uh, of Nikolai Petro's book, The Tragedy of Ukraine. And I think they'll understand much better uh, that uh, the situation we're facing today is one that's not going to be solved by are the policies of any of the major participants uh, as they are currently articulated. That's the bad news. And frankly, I don't see much good news ahead. Thanks very much. Jack Matlock, uh, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, we yeah. really appreciate it. This has been very uh -huh. interesting. Thank you.